following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. going to read verses 1 through 18. I won't really be developing that much about the first half of that with Peter and John coming to the tomb. That's important, of course, but the spotlight that I would put would be on this brave woman who was there. Listen to God's Word, John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we, we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, the other one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in the Aramaic, Rabunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And this is God's holy word. The risen Son of God made his first appearance after death, not on the network news, 
and not on a YouTube video gone viral, not to kings, not to heads of state, not even to his male disciples. He chose to allow the first resurrection witness to be a woman, Mary Magdalene. And as far as we can tell, her prime qualification was her unrelenting, never-say-die spirit of worship and grateful love for Christ as the person who had changed her entire life. With the brand of Roman inhumane cruelty that went on at Calvary, you know, the cross was a circus of cruelty designed to be just as inhumane as any treatment of a human being could possibly be. You would say that Calvary was no place for a woman. At least once upon a time we said that kind of thing. We thought that women ought to be spared certain sights. No place for a woman where men are just being as violent and cruel as they know how to be. And yet, I say to you, it seems to me that you brave women are the ones who are always cleaning up the messes after the violent men. You're the ones at the scenes of birth and sickness and death so much of the time. You could say an isolated grave outside the city guarded by tough Roman soldiers was no place for a woman, but there several of them went. The other Gospels tell us Mary was not alone, and she gives witness herself when she reports to the disciples, we did not find Jesus there, but she's the only one mentioned by name here in John 20. Matthew 28 gives the other names. And so they went, having no idea how does a heavy stone get moved, what kind of treatment are we going to face from those guards when we get there. And you know, of course, that they found a vacant grave, and they ran back to tell Peter and John, and we get the story of that. By the way, of course, John isn't named. He refers to himself here in the third person, as he always does, never giving his own name. But this is the scene where John, the author of this gospel, came to resurrection faith. You notice that there. He saw and believed. That's John who wrote this book, who didn't think the resurrection was real up to that moment, didn't expect it up until that moment. We don't know much about Mary Magdalene. She's kind of a stranger. She's named for her town. She came from the town of Magdala in Galilee near the scene of origin of Jesus' own ministry. We don't know much about her background. There's often the idea that some have that she was a woman of the streets, a prostitute. That is not definitely stated at all in the Scripture. The only thing we do know is Luke 8, 2 says Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. What in the world does that mean? We're not told, but it had to be pretty awful to live with before it was gone. You can imagine what a different life you would have once seven demons stopped making you their home. She quite possibly was a woman of some substance who had enough income or wealth of some kind that she was one of those that helped support the disciples and followed along with them and provided food and things that they needed. Very disastrously, 
the recent day movie and book, The Da Vinci Code, slandered Mary Magdalene and blasphemed against Jesus by implying that the two of them were certainly lovers and had a child. Absolute nonsense. Absolute blasphemy. Without one shred or iota of fact to back it up. And I won't even dignify it with a further denial. All we do know is that here's a woman delivered from an awful kind of life and tremendously gratitude and in the debt of the one who made that possible. And it's really, as we watch her devotion that was all-consuming, our unfortunate sex-crazed society seems to think it's impossible that a pure friendship, a relationship of mutual respect, could have existed between this man and this woman, but it did. Now, on this Easter, of course, churches, including our own, are singing all kinds of glorious praises. Thank you, choir. These folks are here twice today. This is our combined choir, in case you didn't realize that. Thank you for your voices today. You've just boosted us so much more and, and raised the passion of our joy. And, of course, Easter's the day for joy, right? Because it's the most wonderful thing that we announce and we sing about. But the problem with that is we can't get back there where these first people were before the truth of it really dawned on them and understand that they were under the dark clouds of leaden, stifling gloom and sorrow. The world had ended as far as they were concerned. They, they weren't trudging along and saying, if we can just get till tomorrow, we'll find out Jesus has risen. No, none of them were looking for that. Not even John, who was so close to Jesus that he remembered so many of the things that he said. He didn't remember the predictions, on the third day I'll rise again. It was only when he got to that tomb and saw those cloths where they were that he said, ah, now I understand and I believe. So these are people stumbling through deep grief and despair and not expecting anything to change that or turn it around. We should at least try to be first century resurrection discoverers. It's not easy because we know how the story ends. You know, when you know how it turns out, you can't have the same mood and attitude of those who didn't know until they confronted it. But let's try so that in the first place we can join Mary Magdalene in the search for her dead teacher. All that Mary Magdalene wanted to satisfy her on Easter morning was a dead body. All I want for Easter is the dead body of my dearest friend. Imagine the strain this woman is under. She has just watched the man she admired most in the whole world not just killed, but tortured to death. And now she's on the way to perform a last act of tenderness for his dead body, and she's shocked that even the body isn't there. Grave robbery was known in the Roman world. There were laws against it, strict penalties, but it still happened. And that's what she assumed has happened. And so she goes back to the city in a hurry, and then 
with Peter and John running to the tomb. She hurries after them, coming back. So there's been physical exertion involved, emotions going crazy. Now, after Peter and John go, two young men dressed in bright clothing who Peter and John apparently didn't see, but she not only saw but interacted with, have said some things to her, and now she's talking to a stranger. You cannot quite get inside the emotional state of this woman. It says she burst into tears. Ladies, I know sometimes we say you're too emotional, but you cannot accuse Mary Magdalene of being too emotional. You would have been too, the strongest man among you. Your wits would have been tied in knots, coming undone, if you can just try to imagine her emotional state as she wails Where have they taken him? Why did they want his dead body? Didn't they do enough that now they have to desecrate his body? I deal with a lot of people in the early stages of grief. Between the time that someone has been taken from their home and the time we have the funeral and the memorial service, I have to help them plan that and sit down in my office and sometimes just walking through, well, what will we have In the funeral, I've learned something by many, many experiences that even if the person, the the aggrieved person is one of the most intelligent people I know, I've I've learned not to expect too much open-ended thinking. I don't insult them, I think, when I take them by the hand and, and give them simple choices. Should we do this or this in the service? Would you prefer this or this? Because that's the level at which you can think when your reason is unhinged. You're like somebody moving in thick mud and, and your mind just isn't functioning the same way. If you wonder why God honored Mary Magdalene as the first resurrection witness, I think it's fairly simple. It certainly does not have anything to do with her being the wife of Jesus. She wasn't. Rather, she illustrates the principle that the last shall be first. Those who have been the lowest, whose lives have been wrecked and reduced to utter brokenness by demonic forces, apparently, in her case, represent any one of us who knows the depths and the heights of redemption in Christ and therefore is ready to honor Him in the highest possible way from her heart. There's a verse in Jeremiah 29, 13 that I believe Mary Magdalene fulfills. It says, if with all your heart you truly seek him, you shall also truly, surely find him. God rewards persistent faith. Faith that has been off the cliff and has been shattered at the bottom of the canyon and has been raised up again. Mary Magdalene represents the person who knows they must find Christ or die in the effort. And that is the person who surely will find Christ and need not die in the effort. But to start out with, she was just searching for a dead teacher. And a dead body would have satisfied her. Secondly, think about her encounter with the living Lord. This text, I think, is instructive in showing that often our Lord stands closest to us in the times 
when he might seem to be the farthest away or not present at all. It says Mary saw a man standing there. She, she might have even passed by him running to the tomb. He was just part of the scenery, part of the background, you know. When you're looking for a dead body lying still and horizontal, you don't mistake that for a man standing up, walking around. Oh, one of the gardeners. Well, this is, after all, this is a rich man's tomb. Uh, maybe he, you know, puts lilies out or something on the first day of the week at the rich man's tomb or cares for this place or something. and Just somebody who's there, not anybody special. A caretaker. Mary drew a wrong conclusion based on fragmentary evidence. I love a story that is told from the military history of Britain. You'll recognize perhaps from your high school history the name of Wellington, the great general of England, who fought against Napoleon and, I'll give the story away, defeated Napoleon at that great battle called Waterloo in Belgium. Back in those days, of course, there were no telephones or any kind of modern communications to get news of a battle back to the homeland. But people knew that their great general, Wellington, was revered, that he was out there fighting on their behalf and that this battle was almost certain to happen facing off against Napoleon and it was very, very important to England to win this battle. Now, people were anxious. They wanted the news. And the way that news would be conveyed, at least as far as first news, would be a, a ship most likely coming back, the ships that had taken the troops over, across the channel, and, of course, on the ship there would be a flagman with the semaphore flags. You know, you've got all this whole code that you can send messages, spell out letters and, and send messages as long as somebody can see the flags. So there were lookouts along the south coast of England waiting to see the first ship that would come giving news. What would happen? How did the battle go? And sure enough, here came a ship. It was a, a foggy day, bad weather conditions. And somebody's there with their telescope, and they spotted the flagman with his semaphore flags giving the message. The first word was Wellington. The second word was defeated. And then guess what? I'm not making it up. The ship went into a fog bank. Wellington defeated. They actually put couriers on horses and sent them riding for London with that news. Wellington is defeated. And in 15 or 20 minutes, the ship emerged from the fog bank, and the man with the telescope could see the man with the semaphore flags on the ship, still giving the message, this time the whole thing. Wellington defeated the enemy. What a difference. 100% difference when the whole message was understood, not the initial fragment. And folks, that's where a lot of us live in our lives. We live on the fragment of news. We get, yes, it's, it's part of reality. Some news, someone's died. Something tragic has happened. You've been fired. Financial collapse. And it's real, and it's there. And you look at it, you go, I can't believe it. This is the most terrible thing. God has forsaken me. The Bible's not true. Christianity's a fake if I have to deal with this little piece of reality. And we don't wait to see the whole message. 
with hope and trust in the God who is sovereign in all things in our lives. We repeat the mistake that Mary made. No body, the world has ended. No hope, what can I do? No body. We insist on having reality back the way we had it before. Just give me back my broken reality that I had before, God. That's what I really want. We're not ready to believe that there's another piece of reality that has to fall into place for us to understand what God is really doing. And that piece comes in verse 16 of our text. You know, there isn't any, any drum roll I can introduce to give you this verse to, to, for you to see the drama of it. It is so short. It is simple. It is first person. It is absolutely branded with the authenticity of a first-person encounter. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabunai, which means teacher. Isn't it true that if you pick up a telephone and hear from your son, your daughter, your sister, your mother, somebody on the other, that might be on the other side of the country or the other side of the world, and they say, Hello, Mary. Hello, Michael. You know that voice from every other voice, right? Other people speak your name, but it's not the same accent. It's just not that person. Mary heard her name. If it was spoken in Aramaic, he probably said, Mariam. Mariam. And she knew who was speaking. And she knew immediately that the world had shifted on its axis. That time had changed from B.C., before Christ, to A.D., Anno Domini, year of our Lord. You see, the world could not be the same again the minute she knew who was speaking that voice. Mary Magdalene was electrified from the top of her hair to the sole of her feet, and she too was resurrected as her faith told her, my Lord is alive. My master is not a gardener. My Lord. It doesn't even tell us here what she did. You know, I kind of feel like that was left out. It should say she fell down. She clutched him. She wrapped her arms around her. Well, she did all those things. It just doesn't tell us. Because Jesus had to react to how she responded. But you see, John chapter 10 had told us earlier, and we haven't gotten that far in our study of John, but there that important word comes where he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd knows his sheep, and the sheep know my voice, and they hear my voice, and they respond to my voice and no other. Now you say, well, all right, you've told me I'm supposed to be reenacting the first Easter, but I can't hear Jesus speak. And I don't speak Aramaic anyway, so I wouldn't understand him if he said my name in Aramaic. Well, of course, I'm not telling you you're going to hear a voice. But on the other hand, I'm telling you there is a voice. There is the revelation of God that speaks to you, and it's right here. You have it in your lap or in the book and the rack in front of you, it's the Word of God. It's where God speaks. It's the voice of Jesus Christ. 
and it is the voice of God which the Holy Spirit takes hold of and anoints just as he gave it once through prophets and apostles so that we hear God speak to us today in his word, not in dreams or visions or these things, in his word. We hear him speak, and he says your name. He says your name. He says Daryl. He says Sally. He says John. He says Mary, whatever your name is. And he calls you. And we too are awakened from our sorrow and our stupor to know that our Lord is alive. And he speaks to call us. Now Mary had one more lesson to learn, and it was meant for us too. And I'll summarize it in these words. There's no holding back the risen Christ. As I said, it doesn't tell us at the end of verse 16 what she was physically doing, but you can picture it. You don't need to be told, especially when Jesus says in verse 17, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now, the the commentators kind of buzz over this. What did he really say? Unfortunately, the King James Version is not really helpful here. If you have the King James in front of you, I'm not insulting your translation, but it's, it's old and it's not perfect. It says, touch me not. Now, that's not a wrong translation. It's just not a really helpful translation of the context. Jesus was not forbidding physical contact with him. Why would he have done that when the same evening, he's, remember what he said to Thomas? Doubting Thomas, he, held, he said, Thomas, put your finger right there, buddy. You don't believe it? Examine that wound with your finger. And he ate fish with them, and, and he was solid, and he was touchable, and he was absolutely real. It wasn't touching him that was a problem. It was clinging to him in the sense that we've got to have the physical Jesus or we have nothing. You see, better translations, modern translations say things like the NIV, do not hold on to me, or our ESV that I read, do not cling to me. Jesus was touchable for sure. He was no ghost. He was inviting their contact to see that he was real and solid. But the point is, Mary, you can't wrap your arms around me or around my ankles and keep me in your life that way. It's a new age. It's an age when I'm going to be present with you not by the tangible, physical touch and the sound of my actual voice. I'm going to be with you in a better way by my Holy Spirit so that I can even be present equally with you, Mary, here in the first century and with those folks in Lancaster in the 21st century. I can be with my people forever. You can't hold back the risen Christ. You're going to have a new experience. I'm going to go to my father and your father. And Mary, I'm still going to be a man. As I reign and rule in heaven, the wounds will still be in my hands and my feet, but I will be the divine Lord of history. You can't hold me back now that I have risen from the grave. And you know, the church in history, at least part of it, has continued to do just what Mary did. They say, well, you know, we actually prefer something tangible. So don't give me that empty cross. 
I kind of like that cross with the writhing carved figure of Jesus on it so I can picture him in his agony for me and worship him that way. Or don't tell me that Jesus is just spiritually present at the Lord's table. I kind of like that idea that the bread actually turns into his real body. We like the tangible. We want to hold on to the tangible. And that's, by the way, after all, why under Moses, Israel said when Moses was gone too long and their sense of God's presence with them had been a bit of an absence as far as felt presence, they said, give us something we can hold on to. You remember what Aaron did? He cast that golden calf and they turned to it and, and the leaders said to Israel, here is your God. God you can look at and touch and worship and bow before. I think you might know something about God's reaction to that. In 2 Corinthians 5, 16, we read from Paul, although we once knew Christ after the flesh, henceforth we know him that way no longer. The resurrection launches us as his church into a new, more intimate relationship of true belonging to him in the realm of new reality, the vibrancy of the Holy Spirit who is equally at home with every believer at every time in every place. Here we are in America, in our freedoms, in our luxuries, driving our nice cars, off to a nice Easter dinner with family, doing whatever we want to do this afternoon. Listen. Jesus, the risen Christ by his Holy Spirit, is equally present with the believer in him in Pyongyang, North Korea, who cannot possibly speak the name of Jesus in public or he'd be thrown in jail for 10 years. He's equally present with all his people everywhere. The resurrection means you can't hold him back anymore. Yes, we get jealous of a first-century people who actually touched him. I'm jealous of Thomas, who could touch those nail wounds. I'm jealous of Mary Magdalene, who could actually hear the inflection of his voice. And I'm jealous of her for being able to run back to the disciples and say, I've seen the Lord. But I stop being jealous when I read in this same chapter of John 20, near the end, Jesus' own words, he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you and me. Yes, we didn't have to have the sight of our eyes because we believe the Easter witness. And folks, I remind you what I hope you know. Christianity is a resurrection religion. Without the resurrection, we have nothing we are fools. We are idiots. I, I don't know what we're doing here. Any Sunday of the year, any given Sunday, why in the world are we here if there wasn't a resurrection? Remove that, and Christianity is destroyed. But once you have that firm and established and sure, we have every reason for being here, every reason for understanding the hope of this world that so many don't know anything about. And you know, the resurrection is really at the heart of defining what a Christian is, after all. What is a Christian? Uh, someone who's had the Mary Magdalene experience, who has met the risen Lord and has confessed his name, I have seen the Lord. 
Where do I get that from? Very basic verse, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You are his. You can say to his God, my God. You see, you don't have to have lived in the first century to experience the resurrection. Look for the voice and the truth of Jesus where God has spoken it to you in his word. His Holy Spirit brings that alive in us by faith. And the risen Christ awakens us as we hear his voice there just as if he was speaking to you personally and individually. And when you hear that voice, you need to do what Mary Magdalene did and say, Master, my Lord. And then go tell as many people as you can who dwell in darkness, I too have seen the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, what a wonderful truth. Forgive us for holding you back. Forgive us for wrapping our arms around your knees and thinking if you, Jesus, would just stay in this little holy huddle with me and my Christian friends, how nice everything would be. But you tell us with what we have seen and known and heard to go and tell. Become your voice, your reporters to the world. May your gospel run forward this Easter day as we rejoice that Christ the Lord is risen indeed. Amen.